The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgments against it, because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa, where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. But the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods to help and threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. But all this time, Jonah was sound asleep down in the hold, so the captain went down after him. How can you sleep at a time like this, he shouted. Get up and pray to your God. Maybe he will pay attention to us and spare our lives. Then the crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused the terrible storm. When they did this, the lots identified Jonah as the culprit. Why has this awful storm come down on us, they demanded. Who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? What is your nationality? Jonah answered, I am Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of the heaven, who made the sea and the land. The sailors were terrified when they heard this, for he had already told them that he was running away from the Lord. Oh, why did you do it? They groaned, and since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked him, What should we do to stop the storm? Throw me into the sea, Jonah said, and it will become calm again. I know that this terrible storm is all my fault. Instead, the sailors rowed even harder to get the ship to the land. But the stormy sea was too violent for them, and they couldn't make it. Then they cried out to the Lord, Jonah's God. O Lord, they pleaded, don't make us die from this man's sin, and don't hold us responsible for his death. O Lord, you have sent the storm upon us, upon him for your own good reasons. Then the sailors picked Jonah up and threw him into the raging sea, and the storm stopped at once. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power, and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. So I am the proud father of a beautiful, wonderful one-and-a-half-year-old girl, and she is amazing, such a blessing, um, brings so much joy to our household. However, she is a runner. What I mean is this. Anytime that either my wife or I attempt to get her to come to us for almost any reason whatsoever, she takes off and bolts in the exact opposite direction. Now, to me, this is really absurd, illogical behavior for two main reasons. One is that she can't outrun us. Now, as old as I feel sometimes these days, and as much as I have questioned uh, in the, the recent past how many people in the world I actually can outrun, I can guarantee that my daughter is one of them. The second reason this is crazy is that usually we are offering her something good, something that she wants or needs. We're trying to change her diaper or put clothes on her when it's freezing cold in the house or even offering her a bite of her favorite foods, either bananas or crackers. This girl loves crackers. So, we can all agree that this is absurd, right? This is ridiculous behavior. Unfortunately for Jonah, son of Amittai, he does not come across exceedingly better than a a one-and-a-half-year-old in the story that we just read. 
The voice of God comes to Jonah in this story, and this is typical for a prophet of God, which Jonah was. Now, what is a prophet? A prophet had a special designation, a special job within the people of God to convey the word of the Lord to the people who desperately wanted to hear it. The people in this time and place in history absolutely recognized God as the purveyor and protector of all life, right? Both individually and corporately, the entire community. They depended on God for their very livelihoods. And they depended on the prophets to be able to tell them where God was attempting to lead them and the kind of behavior, the kind of lifestyle that he desired them to lead. So, um, there is kind of a unique aspect, however, to Jonah's specific calling here that's different from what most prophets would have had. Um, Unlike most prophets, Jonah was not called here to preach to the people of God, to the Hebrews, the people of Israel. He was called to preach to Nineveh, which was a city in the great Assyrian Empire. Now, the Assyrian Empire and the city of Nineveh were nasty, violent places. I mean, the text itself tells us that this morning. And we won't delve too deeply into that right now, um, but suffice it to say for now, it wasn't a happy, fun journey to go on. So, facing such a difficult decision and calling, Jonah does, I think, what any rational person in his place would do. He runs. He runs away. He attempts to physically run away from the almighty, all-powerful creator of the universe. Very logical. Now let's take a quick look here at the map. I find that this helps. This helps me to kind of visualize what's going on here. Now when we look at this map and what's going on, two things quickly jump out at me. The first is that Jonah indeed moved in the exact opposite direction of where God was attempting to call him to, right? We see Nineveh right there, and yep, there's Tarshish, exact opposite direction. The second thing that jumps out to me about this map is just how far Jonah was willing to go to escape this mission, right? I mean, 550, 2,500. In addition, Tarshish, for people living where Jonah was at that time and place, Tarshish would have been the absolute edge of civilization. Nothing was known, really, beyond Tarshish. So he was willing to go to a very extreme lengths to get away from this calling. Also, let's just add this. Um, Everyone knows this, and you guys can even help me out with this. Everyone knows, right, that to, to best escape the gaze of the Lord, we do it by... Sailing? You guys knew that, right? And this is common knowledge. God doesn't pay attention to what happens on a boat. Sometimes I feel like you should say something out loud once in a while to someone else, right? Just to make sure that your plan sounds as good to someone else as it did in your own head when you were going over it. I feel like maybe Jonah could have benefited a little from that here. Maybe he could have said this plan to someone else, because it's, it's pretty crazy. So we're all in agreement that Jonah comes across in this chapter as a complete and utter fool. But 
I'm afraid that we have no leg to stand on to criticize him. In fact, Jonah, in all his foolishness, actually represents a perfect picture of our own absurd and immature disobedience to God. We are also runners. As I look back on my personal story, uh, I see much foolishness. And I have actually had an opportunity over the last several years to map out all of the major events of my story. And that's been really, really helpful to me. And the one thing that has really jumped out at me and really sticks out is how much foolishness surrounds the the, uh, area of occupation, what I wanted to do for a living. So let let me give you guys just a really brief sort of description of how that went for me. So my senior year of high school, uh, I decided that I wanted to be a doctor. So I planned on being pre-med in my undergrad. However, by the time that I reached college, my freshman year, I changed my mind. And I said, you know, I really like math, and I think maybe I would like to be an engineer. The problem with that is that I had already enrolled in a school that didn't offer an engineering degree. So I became pre-engineering, I guess. They called it something like that, pre-engineering track. Um, However, very early on my freshman year, I encountered this really dark, devious thing that exists in the world called Calculus II. (laughs) And this dark, nasty thing changed my mind again. And I said, engineering is obviously not for me. Uh, So I changed my major, and I became a psychology major. I did graduate with a psychology degree, which I never used professionally. Also during this time of my journey, I became a Christian. And immediately, almost immediately after becoming a Christian, I started sensing from God a calling to do vocational ministry, to do church work for a living. So obviously I ignored that. And I went to law school instead. (laughs) Spent three years in law school, graduated, and never practiced law. Now, I see some looks of disdain in people's faces. So I want to say just in slight defense of myself at this point, that I did actually have one job that I thought that I really wanted to do. It was kind of a dream job that was accessible through law school. And that was working for the FBI. However... I decided against working for the FBI because I was afraid that I would mostly spend my time um, investigating white-collar crime, which, if I'm being honest, that sounded kind of boring to me. So instead, I went to work for a financial corporation where I specialized in trying to help that company uh, prevent white-collar crime. You see what I mean about how things sound a little more absurd when you have to say them out loud sometimes? Like, honestly, before I went and mapped this whole thing out, I didn't really recognize how ridiculous the whole journey sounded. Like, in the moment, it just didn't dawn on me. But I certainly do now. So, um, we all do this, though, don't we? We all run from God every day. 
We run from difficult decisions. We run from people that God wants us to connect with and and show love to. We run from opportunities to share the good news of the gospel with people who need it. We run from carving out even a sliver of time to spend with God himself, allowing his love and his truth to change our hearts into the women and men that he created us to be. We're all just rowing our little paddle boats out in the Mediterranean. Just 2,450 more miles to Tarshish, everybody. We're so close. We're almost there. Now, we all use different methods of running from God. We might outright ignore God or create such busyness and distraction in our lives that there's no time or space left for him and his silly missions to Nineveh. We might create a figment of our own imagination and pretend it's God, allowing our own voices to echo back to us, masquerading as his. We might attempt to control God, making ourselves believe that we know what's best for us. Come on, God. Why would I go to, into the ministry right after college? Wouldn't it make much more sense for me to spend the next three years of my life accruing significant uh, student loan debt in law school? Then, maybe then after that, God, it'll be smart to think about ministry. Now, some of us become really well-versed in one of these methods, while others of us, we're pretty good at all of them. We can pretty much do it all. But regardless of our methods... One common underlying truth about all of our attempts to run from God is this. We all doubt deep down that God really desires what is best for us. So we cling to the things around us, either that the world tells us we need or that we ourselves believe will help us gain more safety, gain more success, gain more happiness. We doubt that God is for us. I want you to hold on to that thought because we're going to come back to it later. It's going to be really important. You may have noticed that the title of this series is Jonah Presents, a series of unexpected events. So what I want to do with the remaining time that we have this morning is I want to detail and go through a list of four major unexpected events that I found in chapter one of this story. And we're going to use those to kind of figure out what's going on here and what is God doing with this story. Now, unexpected event number one we've actually already talked about. Um, we, sort of, we sort of glossed over it, um, but, but it's basically already, we've already done it. And that is that Jonah, through, though a lifelong prophet of God, actually doesn't care anything about God or his plan for him and attempts to escape God, the almighty creator of the universe, and thinks he can simply run away. So that's event number one. And as absurd as that one sounds, 
I actually think that unexpected event number two is a little bit more surprising. Jonah is actually the only Hebrew person in this story, right? The only person uh, who is from Israel and is a, a person of God in the people of God. Because of that, Jonah sort of represents the overall people of God in the story. So with that being said, we've already said that at best, Jonah comes across like a fool. At worst, he sort of seems like an antagonist in the story. So the surprising thing to me is if Jonah's the antagonist, who do we find out to be the protagonists in this story, in the, in the book of Jonah? Well, it's going to be inanimate objects, animals, and pagan non-believers and outsiders. Now, this is really intriguing and important. As we think back on the story that we just read, who was actively looking for God's place in all of those events? Who was positively floored by God's love and mercy? And who responded to God with reverence, awe, and obedience? It was not the Hebrew prophet. It was a group of rough, rogue, pagan sailors. Note the contrast in this story as the storm arises. We have a vigilant crew doing everything they can to save themselves and each other. Versus Jonah, who's asleep, seemingly not caring what happens to anybody. Note the contrast in the sailors wrestling with the decision to throw Jonah overboard. They really struggle with that, right? I mean, they try almost anything they can to, to stop themselves from having to, to resort to, to casting Jonah in. Versus Jonah, who couldn't care at all what he's doing to them. Right? Who has run away from God and then hired this group of sailors to help him and has absolutely no care how that might affect them. Note the contrast as how the sailors believe Jonah's proclamation that God has authority over the wind and the waves versus Jonah, the person who said that in the first place and works as a prophet of God, functionally behaving as though he doesn't believe it at all. Now let's go even a little bit deeper on this. This is fascinating. This is mind-blowing, amazing stuff. When the captain speaks to Jonah in verse 6, he says, Arise, call on your God. The Hebrew words here for arise and call, we have actually already encountered in this very same story, in the same chapter. In verse 1, from God himself. He says to Jonah, arise and call on the city of Nineveh. God's previous words to Jonah are being echoed precisely by this unbelieving ship captain. Jonah was sent to turn pagan unbelievers in Nineveh back to God. But what really happens is that pagan unbelievers on this ship are urging Jonah back to God. 
I think there's a takeaway here for us. But stay with me on this because I do believe that this requires a humility of spirit for us maybe even to hear. God can use the outside world to critique and speak truth into the church. We can be corrected by those who do not believe what we believe. And that correction that comes from those people might be from God himself. If we are humble enough to accept criticism and critique from the outside, it could hugely benefit us and the kingdom as a whole. Think of it this way. If what we are saying and doing is not painting a picture of God that is compelling and making people desire so much the love and the grace and the mercy of God that he is being totally glorified, then what are we doing? We're missing out on the whole point. I think the church has some work to do in this area right now. But I'm also really hopeful. God is very faithful to mold us and change our hearts. We have a third unexpected event in this chapter. It's a very telling conversation between Jonah and some of the sailors. In verse 8, the sailors, obviously distraught at this storm that's about ready to completely wreck them, begin to assail Jonah with a series of questions. Why has this awful storm come down on us, they demanded. Who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? What's your nationality? And interestingly, Jonah chooses to answer the last question first. I am a Hebrew, he says. First and foremost. And I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who creates the the sea and dry land. Almost as an aside. Jonah's primary identity in his own heart and mind is not his status as a child of God here. And it's not even as his occupation as a prophet called to speak the words of the Lord to a people who are absolutely wanting to hear it. His primary identity marker is his race. I am a Hebrew, he says. How would we answer Such a list of questions. Who are you? What do you do? What do you stand for? What makes you, you, in your heart and mind? We should be honest with ourselves about this one. I'm not asking you to answer to me on this question. But I do think we should be humble enough and honest enough with ourselves to at least let God come in and speak on this how he so desires. What do you find yourself primarily thinking about and talking about these days? What do you find yourself mostly getting worked up about? What do you find yourself defending? Maybe it's also issues of race. Maybe gender. Maybe politics in general. Maybe it's the image that you're projecting to the world. 
Maybe your amount of success or prestige. Maybe it's your family desiring, you know, success and well-being for your kids. Don't hear me saying that these things are worthless, that they shouldn't be a part of your identity at all, or that you shouldn't be thinking about them whatsoever. But I definitely hope you hear me saying that these things pale in comparison to the hope and peace that comes with recognizing first and foremost that we are beloved children of God, the God who created the sea and dry land. Now, I know what you might be asking next, or at least I hope so. Well, what's the antidote? How would we go about trying to change the order if we so decide that we want to? Now, I've spent a lot of years, if I'm being honest, asking myself that question and struggling through this issue myself. I've tried a lot of different things, and at the end of the day, this is what I can tell you that I have personally learned. The love of Christ must seep deeper into our hearts. We have to see Jesus in all of his beauty and glory and view him as the only possible first answer that we could ever hope for. I belong to Jesus. I am his. I am loved. I am forgiven. Thus, I love. Thus, I forgive. Thus, I treat the world fairly with respect and kindness and generosity. Let's now move to the fourth and final unexpected event of this morning. This one is actually one that we mentioned earlier, but haven't yet really dug into. It's the fact that Jonah was asleep on this boat while an absolutely death-defying perfect storm was raging outside, threatening to crush the ship and everyone on it into splinters. What in the world is going on here? Was Jonah attempting to ignore God? Yeah, I think so. Was Jonah lying to himself about the consequences of his behavior and his disobedience? Almost certainly. But this scene does something more than just remind us of Jonah's foolishness. It actually points us forward to another very famous scene in the New Testament, in the Gospels. Let's pick up in Mark chapter 4, verse 35. As evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, Let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they took Jesus in the boat and started out, leaving the crowds behind, although other boats followed. But soon a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking into the boat, and it began to fill with water. Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat, with his head on a cushion. The disciples woke him up, shouting, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped, and there was a great calm. And then he asked them, Why are you afraid? 
Do you still have no faith? The disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man? They ask each other. Even the wind and waves obey him. Jonah eventually, after much wailing and gnashing of teeth, offers to be cast into the sea in order to calm the storm. It's a very rare moment for Jonah of self-sacrifice. Though, if we're being honest, we'll probably need to see a little bit more than just this based on how he's acted before, before we go nominating him for a Nobel Peace Prize or something. But what's going on in this story and how this story points us forward to Jesus actually helps us begin to make much more sense of what's going on here. Jesus, of course, unlike Jonah, constantly cared for the people around him. Healing people and preaching the love and forgiveness of God everywhere he went. But like Jonah, Jesus too awoke in the middle of this storm and calmed the wind and the waves. And like Jonah, Jesus cast himself into the sea. Not literally, but figuratively, when he willingly went to the cross to extinguish the greatest storms of sin and death. And this is a really important point that helps make some sense out of what, to be honest, otherwise comes across as kind of an odd story here in Jonah chapter 1. The power of the cross to heal and forgive, and renew, and save, flies in both directions at once. And by that I mean this. Yes, all of us who come after Jesus are offered the healing, and the forgiveness, and the renewal, and the salvation that comes from Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. But those things are also made available to those who came before Jesus' death. The cross also works backward from Jesus' time to the beginning of time. And the cross empowers all of us, whether we come before or after, to sacrifice on the behalf of others. In what seems on the surface to be a really weird twist in this story, despite the fact that Jonah is the only person who ever suggests that his death is required as a payment for his disobedience. Notice that, right? God never says that in this chapter. It's only Jonah. Yet it works, right? Jonah is cast into the sea, and immediately the storm dies down. The sailors celebrate and worship God, vowing that their lives are now devoted to following him and learning to love and serve him forever. It is an amazing, incredible, happy ending. But it only works here in Jonah because Jesus paid that price on the cross. Jonah's sacrifice here is pointing us forward toward Jesus' ultimate sacrifice. And Jesus' ultimate sacrifice moves backward to make Jonah's sacrifice a worthy endeavor that not only physically saves the sailors' lives, 
but saves and renews their spiritual relationship with a God who created and loves them. Jesus died so that these sailors might live and live lives of utmost meaning and hope and joy in the presence of their creator. We are all runners. Deep down, we realize this. And as we've already said, ultimately, we run because we do not trust that God desires what's best for us. Search your hearts. You'll find this is true. We run because we believe deep down that he might not really be for us. We run because we fear what obedience and submission might subject us to. So we run. We get on a boat for Tarshish. We take off, bolting in the opposite direction like a toddler at the sound of her parents' voice. Maybe we don't feel good enough or obedient enough for God's love. Maybe we doubt that salvation and everything that comes with it is even an option for us anymore. But God shows us that these fears and these doubts are unfounded. He shows us in the book of Jonah that he is ready to save despite some really flagrant disobedience. And he shows us through Jesus that his love and desire for our good run deeper than the sea that we sometimes try to throw ourselves into. God is worthy of our trust. God is faithful and loving. And he is worthy of our obedience and our faithfulness. There's no need to run except into his arms. Come, he says, let me show you that I want what's best for you. Let me pour out all of the love and the mercy and the hope and the joy and the forgiveness that your heart can possibly stand. And I've already done that through Jesus. Let us see this is true by seeing Jesus in all of his beauty and all of his glory. Let us believe and cherish Jesus' sacrifice for us. Let us cast off fear and mistrust and replace it with a genuine faith in a good, good God. Let us run to him. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would continue to speak to us. Help your words move deep down into our hearts to truly change us. May we no longer fear the sound of your voice, but be overjoyed at it because we know how much you love us and how much you are for us, not against us. Help us run to you we pray all things in the name of Jesus. And we all said, amen.